Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our podcast today. We will be looking at Luke 5, verses 1 through 11. And uh, this is one of the call stories. And um, I think we're all familiar with the call stories of Jesus. And yet, uh, as Alan's going to point out, this has quite a few differences from the Matthew and Mark versions. Yes, indeed. And in fact, I would say that our gospel lesson this week is a notorious one for those who try to construct a harmonized version of Jesus' life and ministry from our gospels. Um uh, there are narratives about Jesus calling the first disciples in all four Gospels, but only Matthew and Mark actually line up with one another. Um, the others, the one in Luke and the one in John, are all, are all different. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, the story that Jesus was teaching by the Lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, and that the crowd was pressing on him so that he had to get into a boat to teach them, is found in all three synoptic Gospels. But in Matthew and Mark, it's found in connection with the parallel chapter there that where Jesus teaches in parables, Matthew mm -hmm. chapter 13 and Mark chapter 4, the parable of the sower and all the other parables that he tells. But it's not told in connection with the calling of the disciples. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's an account of the miraculous catch of fish in John, but it comes at the end of the gospel as one of Jesus' mm -hmm. post-resurrection appearances. So we've got some connections with the gospel tradition, but they're in different places in all the gospels. So why, why is Luke so different, do you think? Well, I think Luke is wanting to help us understand um, why it is that the disciples left everything, and followed mm -hmm. Jesus mm -hmm. the way they did. And we'll come back to that. But I think that's really what's going okay. on here. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Those who want to reconstruct a harmony of the Gospels, you know, they, they see similar episodes with different details indicating different events. And actually here, rather than collapsing, <laughs> what they do is they create different different events, you know, mm -hmm. the, out, of, out of similar stories. Mm -hmm. And so many have seen the story of Jesus calling his disciples as a progression, moving from the first encounter in John chapter 1, mm -hmm. that's considered to be the first encounter. John the Baptist tells Andrew and one of the other disciples, mm -hmm. one of his other oh, disciples, mm -hmm. behold the Lamb of God, and they follow him. And then the, the call that we see in Matthew 4 and Mark 1, where Jesus comes to the disciples mm -hmm. and, and, and they leave their nets, uh, is a preliminary call. And then the present narrative in Luke 5 is the final call to apostleship mm. because, you know, here finally, you know, you have this miracle and it's sort of the, it, it's, and it's, all of these episodes are different steps right. in the, in the progression of calling Jesus, calling his disciples, but even Calvin that's saw that that's not how the gospel writers that's worked. True. Yeah. Instead, a situation like this one, I think gives us a glimpse at the stability and the flexibility of the gospel tradition, as it was in the transition from the oral stage to the written stage in our gospels. The tradition was stable in that certain elements are present mm -hmm. in more than one or two gospels, but it was flexible in that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John were each able to incorporate their ele these elements into their written gospels as they saw fit. 
So, and that helps them kind of carve that unique, um, unique lens that we yes. talk about. And that- each one of them does have a unique mm-hmm. lens on, you know, who is Jesus and what is the meaning of his mission in his life? Well, yeah. as I think about, you know, and we've talked about this before, it, we just have, we have such a desire to to create or to define these gospels differently mm-hmm. than they are. We mm-hmm. want to make them fact books. We want to make yeah. them biographies. We want to know the facts of Jesus' life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to some extent, we can know some of the basic facts of his life. Right. Uh, the gospels provide us enough information to reconstruct that. To some extent, we can't. We can't right. do a definitive biography of Jesus based on our gospels. Exactly. You know, this is really a long aside might go later but uh i had my cousin died yeah and she um she was when i first talked with her she was just obsessed with getting all the facts and details of her life out and 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 so it was in perfect order so everyone would know Mm. when she would receive this award or when she and i said colleen it's the stories that are really going to going to have the big impact it's how people remember you and it's the different angles on these different stories that are going to bring your life to light and it reminds me a little bit of that conversation yeah Uh yeah the 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 meaning of jesus life for the people who you know were closest to him yeah that's what Mm -hmm. the gospel writers are trying to articulate so what are some of the nuances in luke's text well i mean uh, you know luke starts by just really a rather ambiguous once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing on him to hear the word of God. It's a kind of a rather ambiguous. It really is. When you think it's not like now, it's not like first, it's just once, <laughs> once, once, yeah. once upon a time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, um, so, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, and the actual order of the clauses in Greek is reversed, and here we have another example of that rather sophisticated version of Greek that Luke is fond of, and I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say that in passing in case you're working with it. There is general agreement that the Lake of Gennesaret was the same thing as the Sea of Galilee, but it is only called the Lake mm. of Gennesaret in Luke's Gospel. Is that because of his audience, do you suppose? I think there was some, I think there was just um, uh, that much flexibility probably. in what people called yeah. that body of water okay. in that day and That's time. That's probably true, yeah. 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 Uh, in Matthew and Mark, it is only called the Sea of Galilee, although the town of Gennesaret is named in okay. Matthew and Mark. In John's Gospel, it is called the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Okay. Um, so, you know, again, I just, I think basically there was just a lot of flexibility by which this body of water was, was known, a lot of different names by which this body of water was known. And of course, um, Galilee was the region, Gennesaret was one of the cities, Tiberias right. was one of the cities. So that's probably explains some of the variation that, in names. That's not atypical for today. Mm, I mean, right. I mean, I was just thinking, I grew up by a lake. If I said to anyone in a, in a town that I was going to the lake, they knew right, exactly right, where I was going, right. and yet it had a more formal name. Right. And so I, I think that's not atypical to have different names sure, for it. Sure. Mm-hmm. Now, that the crowd was pressing on him to hear the word of God is a unique description of Jesus' teaching ministry. Um, while it's clear elsewhere that Jesus teaches with authority, we saw that in Mark's mm-hmm. gospel, and even places his own teaching on the level with the Torah, as he does in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said of old, and he'll quote the Torah, and then, mm-hmm. but I say to you, only in Luke is it said that he was teaching the word of God. 
And this is a theme in Luke and Acts. Jesus' message and the message of the gospel in Acts is known as the Word of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it's just called the Word, mm. but this this is a theme in the book of Acts, Luke and Acts, and so in the books of Luke and Acts. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's important to that, note. That is, and that's something actually that Calvin's going to pick up on a little bit too, and and some of the reformers this mm-hmm. this this emphasis on the word. Not surprised at that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. that would make sense, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, so let's let's move on. What else does Luke do? So Luke tells us next that Jesus saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. This detail is somewhat paralleled in the account mm-hmm. of the calling of the disciples in Matthew and Mark. Andrew and Simon were in the process of fishing when Jesus called them in, in Matthew 4.18 and Mark 1.16. But when he came upon James and John, they were mending their nets. So it you know, in Luke, mm-hmm. it's washing their nets. In, in Matthew and Mark, it's mending their nets. So again, I would say that instead of relating those details, Luke is kind of summarizing okay. here, as we have already seen as his tendency. Yep. And this narrative strategy is found throughout the Luke's gospel in Acts. It, that's, it, it's, it's interesting, but yeah, that is his, that is his thing. Well, and yeah. all of them do that to some extent. Right, um, of course. Um, and it's interesting, you know, when you look at Luke, you know, in a, in a synopsis of the Gospels or a parallel, you know, there's, there's some things that he summarizes and then there are other things that he expands right. on that nobody else well, has. Well, and likewise, <laughs> even Mark, you have some yeah. of these really interesting little, wow, that, right. <laughs> Details. is that really important? Yes. But it's fascinating. Yeah. All right, yeah. so moving on, we... Um, we know there's a lot about Simon Peter in here. So what, what's what's his role? Well, basically, Luke says that Jesus got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. And then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boats, uh, from the boat. That's Luke five three. Mm-hmm. And again, this detail is paralleled also in the chapters, uh, in the mm-hmm. parables chapters in Matthew thirteen and Mark four. But there's no mention of who owned the boat there. Um, because <laughs> Peter and Peter and uh, Andrew and James and John are already following Jesus by the time we get to that part in right. Matthew and Mark. Um, but we will see that Luke seems to want to focus attention on Simon Peter in this version of the disciples' call to Jesus. And by identifying the boat as belonging to Peter mm-hmm. at the outset of the story, he brings him to our attention. Simon is also named Cephas in the New Testament, and Jesus gives him the name Peter. Uh, it's my impression that Jesus calls him Simon more frequently in Luke than in the mm. other Gospels. And so there's some there's some variety in actually the name that Jesus uses for Simon, mm-hmm. K- Cephas, Simon, Peter, um, um, uh, among the Gospels. Um, now, um, you know, he's called Peter by Luke uh, quite frequently, but uh, Jesus... When, when Jesus addresses him, Jesus seems to address him more as Simon interesting. in Luke's gospel. Yeah, that's an that yeah, that's um that's interesting. Well, I think, you know, as you're talking about this, do the disciples know who Jesus really was at this point? Well, you know, we don't have any indication. Um I think that that they knew who he really was, but 
there does seem to be an indication that they may have heard something about him. So after Jesus finished teaching the crowd, Luke tells us that Jesus said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. And of course, Simon answered him, master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing yet. If you say so, I will let down Mm -hmm. the nets. So, you know, these guys are professional fishermen. They, you know, if you've ever been around professional fishermen, you know, they know their business and they're not really uh, keen on having other people tell them how to do their business. And I I think um, these uh, professional fishermen might have responded differently to a different carpenter giving them advice on how to conduct their business. Mm -hmm. But apparently they did have some prior knowledge of Jesus. I don't know that they knew who he was until this miracle happened, Mm -hmm. but Simon Peter's form of address here to Jesus, epistata, or master, is a unique way in which Jesus' disciples address him in Luke's gospel, Mm. in contrast to Matthew and Mark, who Hmm. use didaskale, or curie, Mm -hmm. more common, teacher or lord. Mm -hmm. And this term was commonly used for a supervisor or a government official, but also for a private tutor. Uh, a study and the study of the way Luke's gospel and the characters in it named Jesus is actually quite interesting. Luke calls Jesus curios mm-hmm. more frequently than any other gospel writer. And that's significant because, you know, as we saw with Mark's gospel, one of the questions was, do people recognize who Jesus is? You know, mm-hmm. Mark right. starts off with the affirmation that he's the son of God, but only the centurion at the cross is the only person who says that. Otherwise, Jesus calls right. himself the son of man. And so, uh, and, and likewise, in the other gospels, there's some, there's some tension about, you know, how the gospel writers describe Jesus, how they name him. Matthew is a little more free to name him Luke. Uh, Matthew's a little more free to name him Curios uh, or call him Lord. But Luke uh, uses this more frequently than any other gospel writer. Mm. Now, those who are somewhat hostile or neutral typically call him teacher or mm-hmm. didaskale mm-hmm. in, in Luke. And the disciples either call him epistata, as here, master, right. or kurios, Lord. And so here, the implication is that it's a term of respect. Uh-huh. You know, I, yeah. Simon says, if you say so or literally at your word. Mm-hmm. So I think that indicates his respect for Jesus. Yeah. So he, he I think they had some so prior like knowledge. Some knowledge of who he is. Some knowledge, Which, but but n- not necessarily, you know, the knowledge they're going to leave with after this episode. And the way it makes episode. sense, because he's preaching all these, all these right. people, this crowd is gathered, so people know something about who he is, well, but and maybe not that he is indeed um, God incarnate, sure, right? They might sure. just think he's a a great teach, uh, teacher teacher yeah hmm. yeah they may have heard they may have heard something about healing miracles you know it's hard to say mm-hmm. what they might have heard yeah so he goes out and he gets a big catch of fish yeah yeah luke continues the account by reporting that when simon and his associates did what jesus told him they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break and as a result they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them and i think the point of the narrative at here is to emphasize that the miraculous catch of fish is indeed miraculous. Mm -hmm. They caught such a great multitude of fish, um, literally, plethos iskuan palu, a a great multitude of fish, that their nets were tearing. Mm -hmm. 
And when their partners in the other boats came to help, they filled both boats so that they began to sink. So all of this serves to highlight, again, that this was truly a miraculous mm-hmm. catch of fish, not just an extraordinarily lucky catch. You know, right. this was way above and beyond anything they would have ever seen or expected. Right. Let me ask this, because in, in the reformers, as they were getting into this, um, a few of them used allegory, and from what I got re- reading, this was often allegorized in the early church. I'm sure it was. Do you think that has any any bearing here? No, I don't. <laughs> okay. No, um, you know Jesus. Jesus uses a parable in in Matthew and Luke, I believe, about um, the kingdom of God is like a fisherman catching fish mm-hmm. and throwing out the good ones and the bad ones, you know, and. Um, but, you know, and so I can see why some maybe even of the reformers might have applied, applied sort of this allegorism to or an allegorical approach to this, this story. But the, the point of this event, the point of this miracle mm-hmm. is to demonstrate to Simon and James and John who Jesus is. Okay. That's the okay. point of this. Yeah. So moving on, what? How does uh, Simon Peter respond? Yeah, and and the effect of the miracle again. Luke is focusing on Simon Peter, so he, you know, Peter kind of speaks for, represents the others here to some extent. When Simon Peter saw it, Luke says he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, "Go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man." That's in Luke five eight. And note here that Luke names him Simon Peter only here, and. Um, uh, sort of in Luke six fourteen, where there's a listing of all oh. the all the apostles, Simon, who was also known as Peter, right. but he's only known as Simon Peter. He's only called Simon Peter here. In Luke's gospel, he is more commonly called Peter, and sometimes simply Simon. But the fact that Simon Peter falls down before Jesus and confesses that he's a sinful man indicates, I think, that he's aware that he is in the presence of a prophetic figure, Uh perhaps, or an agent of God, or perhaps even someone who conveyed a holy presence. And I think we can see this miracle of this catch of fish as something of a theophany. Um, and so then uh, it's interesting that the phrase prosepicen tois gonison, he fell down at the knees, is only used here in the New Testament, although the idea uh, you know, of, of, of falling down before someone or kneeling is common, right, in right. Luke and Acts. It's, it's used a lot. Um, it, it could be simply another way of saying to fall down at someone's feet. Or it could imply falling down and grasping someone by the knees. Huh. But it's a unique phrase. It's only found here in the New Testament. But it definitely references he fell down at the knees. So yes. at Jesus' knees, not right. by his own knees. Right, right, right. right Am I right. understanding it correctly? Well, it just says at the knees. He fell down at the knees. So perhaps he fell down on his knees, or perhaps he fell down at Jesus' so we knees. Don't know. It's hard it's just, to say. Okay. Yeah, okay. it's hard to say. Interesting. Yeah. 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 I, I guess I've always, especially here, thought of it as, you know. Fell down on uh, his knees. Yeah. 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 Uh, right. um, that he was overwhelmedly buckled, kind mm-hmm. of, you know, in right. that. Um, but again, so that's interesting. Sure. Um, I, another thought on the, the naming of Simon Peter. I think that's, I think that's interesting. Do you think it's, as he... <laughs> Okay, I may be going way too far with this, but I'm thinking of this in terms of kind of Peter's own sanctification process. Mm-hmm. I mean, as Peter becomes more and more a disciple, 
do we drop the name Simon? Is it I don't think it's that way. I don't think it's that. I don't think it's that neat. I think it's just you find. So he, this person has three names, and this was not unusual in the in the first okay. century world, right? So his Aramaic name was Cephas, right? Right, and Simon may have been more of a Roman name. And Peter is the name that Jesus gave him because it, it is connected with the term Petros. You know, on right, this rock, right. I will build my church. And um, um, one, one New Testament scholar uh, has pointed out that that wordplay only works in Greek. So <laughs> perhaps so, perhaps you've got, you know, an Aramaic name, a Roman name, you know, a, a Roman name and a, and a, and a, um, a Greek name. Correct here. me here. So, so Cephas does not equal Peter. Those are two separate words. So actually, yeah, Cephas does mean rock in Aramaic, and so um, um, you know that that you know would would also explain why Jesus would call him uh, Petros. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. But we do see it. We do see separate um, the Aramaic and a separate. He's he's Greek. named he's named differently. I mean, okay. uh, Paul in Paul in Galatians calls him Cephas almost you know exclusively, and and as I said you know in 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 Luke's gospel yeah. Jesus Jesus addresses him as Simon more frequently. Okay, Luke calls him Peter when okay. he's talking about him, and so it's really more I think about uh, who's who's talking about this person. It's, it okay. has to do with uh, what, which name they use for him. Okay, <laughs> uh, what about the others who are present? I mean we are focusing on Simon Peter, right. but there's other people present. Here. Well, finally, finally, Luke gets around to indicating that Simon's associates also responded in the same way to Jesus. Okay. And um, he says, for he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with mm-hmm. Simon. So here we have we have um, James and John named particularly. Now, this part of the narrative also parallels the calling of the first disciples in Matthew 4 and in Mark 1, because um, there it's, it's Simon and Andrew and James and John. Mm-hmm. Now, we might ask, in comparison to Matthew and Mark, what happened to Andrew? And in fact, in John's gospel, Andrew is the one who, um, uh, wh- whom John the Baptist you know, refers right. to Jesus, and then later, Andrew goes and finds Peter. Right. So, Andrew has priority in John's account. Uh, it would seem that Luke is aware of the tradition that Peter, James, and John constituted right. a kind of inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And so, I think perhaps he's emphasizing their participation at this amazing event by which Jesus calls to follow him because they're going to emerge as sort of this inner circle of disciples later on. Now, notice that Luke not only includes them, but also all who were with him. That is, all uh-huh. who were with Simon Peter. And Luke literally says that they were seized with awe. Um, uh, the com- Common English Bible translates it overcome with amazement. Philip's translation says they were staggered. Mm. New Living Translation says they were awestruck. Um, the New Testament for everyone by N.T. Wright, they were gripped with amazement. It's a very, it's a very unique 
idiom, and it's only found in Luke and Acts. Mm. And so um, uh, that's an, I, you know, I, I think it's important to mm. to bring this out. Um, um, you know, the New Revised Standard Version simply says they were amazed, oh, <laughs> and so I think kinda, that's really a lame oh, translation. They they really missed the boat on this idiom here because this is a stronger statement than yeah, just they yeah. were amazed. Okay. Yeah, they were seized with awe. They were overcome with amazement. They were staggered. Wow. They were awestruck. You know, they were yeah. gripped with amazement. But just to say they were amazed. <laughs> yeah, the new RSV missed the boat on that yeah. one, I think. Oh, shoot. <laughs> so then in response, Luke tells us that Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. And that's Luke 5.10. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think as I read this, I hear the command not to fear in the connection with a theophany in the biblical yes, story, because uh-huh. that's 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 commonly what happens. You know, um, uh, either an angel of the Lord or the Lord makes an appearance, right, and right. the person is struck with fear, and and the very you know almost the very first words that come out of the mouth is "Don't be afraid." Yeah, oh yeah, that, that's a really good point. And so uh, this is a common assurance to those in the Bible who receive a theophany. Uh-huh. I think that also strengthens the 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 sort of the implication in the biblical witness that this is meant to be a theophany Mm -hmm. or a Christophany Uh if you prefer. Now, despite the fact that James and John are present and included in this call experience, again, it seems that Luke wants to emphasize Simon Peter's role. The way in which Jesus phrases his call to disciples is similar to that in Matthew and Mark. I will make you to become fishers for people there, but the language of you will be catching is unique to Luke's gospel, both in the grammatical construction huh. and in the in the vocabulary of zogreo. Um, huh. Okay, you know, to catch was was sort of like to 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 trap almost, and uh, could have some negative. Um, oh implications, but I think it's important to note that Jesus is extending this invitation to join him in the work of the kingdom, which uh, Joel Green in his uh, commentary on the Gospel of Luke sort of presents as sort of catching and releasing, because you're catching them and then um, uh, then you're, you're, you're bringing the release, you're bringing them into the freedom that Jesus has already announced was the, the, the point of his mission among people was to bring them the, the, the year of the Lord's favor. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's also important to note that Jesus extends this invitation to join him in the work of the kingdom to one who is by his own confession, a sinner. That's crucial, I think, because this sets the stage for Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel that will definitely focus on sinners and will include sinners. Mm -hmm. And so this is very important, I think, uh, as well. Might be easy to overlook that because we've heard the story so many times. Right. But but that's going to be important for Luke's gospel. So then Luke concludes the story by simply saying that when they had brought the boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. And again, Matthew and Mark emphasize more, perhaps a little more, that Simon and Andrew immediately left their nets mm-hmm. and that James and John immediately left, yep. left their boat and their father to follow Jesus. Now, again, while Luke doesn't spell out their response quite the same way, I think the effect is the same. They left everything and right. followed Jesus. Right. So that, that signals their total commitment to Christ. 
And, I, you know, I can see how people who are trying to create a harmony of all these events right. could come up with this then as the as the final stage in, in discipleship. I just I, I don't agree with that approach. I think this I think we have three different call stories, one in Mark and Matthew, one in John and one in Luke. Mm-hmm. And each of the gospel writers has framed the call story of the first disciples in a way that is going to contribute to the thematic emphases in their own gospels mm-hmm. and, and then bringing out certain emphases that are important for their pr- presentation of Jesus. So as we look back at this that we've just done, why do the disciples follow Jesus? Yeah. And that, you know, that's the question, you know, uh, I think as we I think we discussed this last year in fact when we were looking at the mm-hmm. call story in Mark's gospel that why did the disciples follow Jesus because right. you know um, Mark's story really you know with Mark's story we could only fill in the blank you know right. um that perhaps people were aware of the authority that Jesus possessed. And I think I remember we had this discussion about there was something unique yes, about something Jesus. Unique. And, and, it, and later on, Matthew, Mark is going to name this as his exousia or his mm-hmm, authority mm-hmm. that he ministers with. And so we, we can only fill in the blank with Mark. In John's account, we have a little more in that the first disciples had been prodded by John the Baptist. Look, here is the mm-hmm. Lamb yes, of God. Yes. Um, uh, you know, I've always, I've always found it weird though, that, that Nathaniel responds with this really high confession, you know, my Lord and my God, just because Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but what Luke does is provide us with a call narrative for the disciples that makes sense. Right. right. I mean, yeah, you know, right. he, you know, now he may very well have combined two episodes that were separate in the original tradition, the calling of the disciples and the miraculous catch of fish. But the effect is that we understand we come away from this, this call narrative of the disciples understanding why his first disciples were willing to leave everything and follow him mm-hmm. because they were staggered. They were awestruck mm-hmm. by the miracle and by Jesus himself. And so I think that's what Luke does. I think that's Luke's com- contribution, really, is he may be pulling together, together different right. elements from different parts of Jesus' life, but by pulling them into his, his call narrative of the first disciples, you know, we don't, mm-hmm. we don't, we don't walk away from this scratching our heads and, and wondering, why did, they, why did they do this or why did mm-hmm. they say this? It really makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and uh, we're going to let Christy uh, walk us through what the Reformers uh, had to say about this passage. So uh, talk to us about the Reformers, Christy. Sure. Um, I guess my overall comment is that by the 16th century, this is kind of all over the place from folks that are looking at traditional medieval allegory, which I didn't really spend much time with, um, and and to the brokenness of humanity. So uh, what I think is interesting, though, is that we can see places all the way through where they have these kind of Reformation lenses on, and um, we find themes that we've heard about through the past. It just reminds us, again, that um, we're impacted by the era that we're in and by the by the various um, things that are important when we come to Scripture. And you can kind of hear these pieces in and out. So I just thought I'd lay out a few of the themes that I saw 
in this. And, and some of them we likewise saw in, in Alan's view. But um, the first, I think, is that God works through us where we are. In other words, in our, in our vocation, that we don't have to stop being who we are now to be something different for God. That's interesting that mm-hmm. they would see that out of this passage where the, they left everything and followed him. <laughs> well, it is, except that but they're talking about that these are fishermen, and mm-hmm. they're called through that space uh, as fishermen, so if the, you will. So they're going to be fishermen who are going to be called to be fishers of men. Right, so, so they don't have to, you don't have to step out of your role and then feel this. So it, I think they're really their background is thinking about being the priesthood mm-hmm. where people are being pulled away and mm-hmm. trained separately in a separate place before then they are really right. a, a, um, ordained to be servants of God suggesting of you don't have to be there when God calls you. And I think that's what kind of what their mindset is, is that God can call anybody in any uh, space. Right, right. I, I, I thought, I think that's more of the emphasis um, that, that we see there as opposed to, but then, then once God calls you, you're transformed. I, th- right. I think that is a part of it as well. Um, and I, I, th- I think it also reflects um, this kind of um, priesthood of all believers right. as well, right? Um, that that um, y- you are anybody, anybody, anywhere should be and responsible to God's call, Um well, it's it's the yeah, it's the ministry of the the whole people of God, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, and you know, I think too, as we then serve, particularly in a reformed tradition, where we have these different spaces to serve, to be ordained as an elder or as a deacon or as a, uh, a as a teaching elder or whatever those situations are, that all of those it, it kind of is emphasis on these spiritual gifts. So, mm-hmm. um, I think it's I think it's important is that that you don't have to be tapped out for priesthood way early in advance and pulled away and taught all these things mm-hmm. before you can indeed serve. And I think that's what they're referencing. Well, and I mean, that makes sense. I mean, because our tradition, you know, stresses that that all of the offices are equally important. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's not that, that, you know, ministers of Word and Sacrament have any kind of, you know, um, greater honor in serving than an, an, uh, a ruling elder or a deacon. You know, we're all called. Right. And equally. Equally, exactly. Yeah. So another theme that I found was, and this one is kind of interesting, is that they saw this as kind of a sanctifying faith. Mm. So instead of, I mean, we think of a call story and we think of, oh, I didn't believe, now I believe that this is part of a growing in faith. And it might kind of reflect <laughs> yeah. your your. This this one might reflect your idea that there's this that it fits within a harmony. I, I would think. I would think that this does assume a progression on mm-hmm. the part of the disciples. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. this idea of well, all these people are there listening to Jesus and they're all finding him interesting, but they haven't really identified who he is. And then there's this aha, and then there's this following. So right. this particular one might follow that type of thing. Um, mm-hmm. um, I think. Um, um, that it does remind us, um, um, I guess, in in that that God can take us from our our brokenness as well. Uh, um, yeah. as, as as part of it, and that, they actually have that theme 
kind of laced in somewhere else as well. But um, that there's an imperfection in our in incompleteness, but we can still follow God. And well, I mean, yeah, Peter says, "Go away from me, Lord, because I'm a sinful exactly. man." Exactly, <laughs> and and that was one of the big pieces why I, I identified this as a theme because right. it's not that there's this kind of of again it all all reflects back on an attack on the roman catholic Mm -hmm. i mean indirectly is that that isn't how the church works Mm -hmm. and remember we've talked about the medieval stations where you've got those who work and those who pray right um and those who fight and so you had that division of duties here and suggesting of all people even in your sinfulness are 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 called to follow god and called to be true disciples surely. and share surely. not just uh passive right yeah well and yeah i mean and you you made that point about how you know the priests really didn't have a lot of contact with real life <laughs> and um and you know that if if that's your paradigm for vocation, obviously, right. you know, m- most people are going to feel like they're not called. They're not called. Exactly. And so I, I think it's actually important. This is kind of an important concept yeah. when you think about it. So yeah. another one, and this is no surprise, is the power of the word. Mm. And so they're putting emphasis in, on that initial that Jesus is preaching from the boat, um, um, here and that all this whole crowd is there, and so there's this emphasis on on speaking, and it's through that speech then that people come to discipleship, mm. which is again one of the primary. It's we know it's laced throughout Calvin, and this particular um, space was not only in Calvin, but in, in Heinrich Bullinger, another one of our Swiss reformers. But again, the centrality of the word in discipleship, um, and interestingly enough, it kind of is is pulling at us to be preachers and I, I think some of this comment was um is that uh, the disciples are now sent off to be preachers too mm-hmm. and to preach the word of god well and you know when you think when you when you mention that and and you know when you contrast that with um you know the idea that perhaps the central vocation of the priests was to maintain the sacrament exactly um you know i think about my own experience um i've always seen preaching and teaching as being central to my vocation <laughs> and exactly. I mean, and, exactly and it's not that it's not that i you know it's not that i thought that the sacraments uh, weren't important it's just that you know the the central the central task to which i was called was preaching and but teaching the word and, yeah. that, and that's the, the that's very word, that's absolutely. that's our protestant view of it and yeah. and now of course in the roman catholic church it, yes. preaching is important as well but mm-hmm. but then that wasn't so important right. it was the sacrament is performing the sacrament and the mass and right. honestly um you know when when i worked at the hospital and the priests were around delivering mass they weren't necessarily reading scripture right no, they were right. delivering masses right um, they were delivering. Masses. They were delivering the body of Christ. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So there's still an emphasis on that that is different. Well, and it's almost like the priests are sort of the uh, keepers of salvation because yeah. they're yeah. the ones who can baptize. They're the ones who can offer absolution. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who can. They, they're the ones who can marry. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who can give the sacrament of of, of right. communion. They're the ones who can who can give you last rites, you know, right. and, and, uh, and, you know, they're the ones even that have the say over whether you get to be buried in consecrated ground sometimes, you know, right. and, right. and so that's a very different, um, model 
of of uh, what it means to follow Christ, I think, than than the one that we have in the Protestant right, world. Right. Right. Well, and you know, as I'm thinking about this too, it, it reminds you even even today that how those differences, even though they are spending more time on preaching than they were in the Middle mm-hmm, Ages, sure. You could still see the, the these differences play out in the faith mm-hmm. traditions today, and yeah. it, it, it's it's one of those spaces that there's div- division definitely. Mm-hmm. So moving on, another theme was just the, the whole mystery of God, um, and, and, and the nature of God as a whole. And so there's a couple different themes there, but the, this this idea that, that that God does work in mysterious ways, and this whole idea of this catch of fish right. which is outside of out, outside of the as you mentioned this is a big miracle it's that, not even it wouldn't even have been right. a, a, an extraordinary catch right. that they would have expected yeah. i mean because it was so many fish that it was sinking their boats <laughs> but what i love about it it it's coming within something they know. Mm-hmm. You know, they know about fishing. Right. They know where the fish are. They know and how they to fish. And they knew that this many fish, there was no sense. way they were going to catch right, that many fish. Right, right. <laughs> um, so it's this reminder of that um, having faith is is much deeper than, than well, we've seen this happen before and it's going to happen again, maybe a little better with Jesus. I mean, that mm-hmm. this is the, sometimes the experience of God is really out of anything we can expect or imagine. Well, and I will, I will bring in, you know, you asked me about allegorizing the, the miracle. Um, uh, Joel Green in his commentary uh, does say that the, that the, um, sort of the extraordinary, you know, over the top nature of this catch of fish um, could be seen as kind of a um, sort of a foreshadowing of uh, the way in which Peter and James and John were going to carry out their ministries. Because, you know, when you get to Acts, you've got, you know, 3,000 people in one day, you know, coming to Christ. Right, and, right. And so you, you have these almost miraculous responses to their preaching. Right. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I think we don't necessarily today even accept it this way. It's it's that kind of, it's that kind of push on us too, you know, um, the pos- possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that, that, that God is going to work through us in miraculous ways. Right. I, I think part of the challenge for me, and I've probably said this before on the podcast, but for me, I think. Our, our, cha- our challenge is with expecting miraculous things to be sort of these outsized, you know, oh, big, huge, spectacular events. Um, uh, to me, I think anytime, anytime you touch a heart, anytime you touch a life, anytime you shape a person's, you know, um, uh, character, you know, that's pretty miraculous. <laughs> right, right. So another one of these pieces um, that fits with this about about the nature of God is, is is Christ and that Christ is Lord and as we talked about this this idea of the theophany mm-hmm. of Christ and um, there is an emphasis on um, uh, on the Christ that is that it is not in what we do but what Christ does in us mm. and um, I think that's an interesting it's it when. I think when I asked Alan earlier about this idea of falling on your knees, I think it's that for me, when I, when I visualize that, it's that kind of overwhelming, I am nothing without mm. Christ in my life. And, and, and mm. that sense of that I can't even stand anymore. Um, that I, I, I'm not even in control of my own 
niece, <laughs> you know, right, and that may right. not be fair. That's my, sorry, that's my interpretation, yeah. but it reminds me of this here is that it's, it's what Christ is doing in us. Well, I think from a biblical perspective, you know, that is the common, you know, people fall on their faces, people fall on their mm-hmm. knees when they're confronted with the holy. Exactly. And, and so, you know, I, I think I, and that's the way I would think of it is that, you know, um, Peter rec- recognized that um, that there was something in Jesus that was overwhelming, and he was overwhelmed, and 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 um, yeah, and and I think he was overcome by his own sense of inadequacy as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, um, but I like this emphasis on it's not what we do, but what Christ does in us, uh-huh. because you know, <laughs> a, a verse that is echoed in my mind all of my career has been if anyone puts their hand to the plow and then turns back they're not worthy of the kingdom of god well my goodness i've turned back so many times in my career it's not even funny oh right and and um you know uh, i i left the ministry for several years Mm -hmm. after my first divorce and so you know the the thing that that i guess the what keeps me going is I, I really hope that it's not what I do, but what Christ does in right, and through me. Right, right. <laughs> uh, another aspect of God that is in here, which I, I didn't think about, was the mercy of God. Um, and I think there's this, um, also another Reformation theme as well about the nature of God, but that God has mercy on us. And I, I think there's what what nature of God is paramount. We've talked about this before, which is, you know, the medieval world is so focused on God's wrath and that our modern emphasis of love, that's, that's really a reformation idea that comes out of Luther, you know, that God loves us. And that is at the forefront of the mind, but not of those people in the middle ages who are just fearful of fearful of God. Um, so this passage for our reformers is one to emphasize God's love and forgiveness. Um, yeah, it's hard for me to put myself into a place where my primary notion of God is one of wrath mm-hmm. or, or one of, one of uh, vengeance or one of punishment. You know, that's, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm, I can't imagine the, the literal, literal fear with which people must have lived their lives right, every right. day. Right, exactly. It's it's an interesting it's an interesting space, and it's not that love was never present at any level. But remember, we're not, you know, we're looking for people to intercede for us, mm-hmm. and and that Christ Himself was the judge, and we've talked about that before. And so here for the reformers, this is one of those examples of of Christ's forgiveness, and you know, Peter's like I I I. I you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't trust you. Right. You told me to put nets out. I, I did it. I had some respect, but I didn't think it would happen. Right. And no. then no. this, um, emphasis on, uh, on it's okay. You know, it's okay. You're forgiven. I love you. Uh, Melanchthon actually adds his own interpretation to this, which I liked. And he says, look, um, he thinks it should say, do not fear, but do not fear because you are a sinner and terrified of your unworthiness. I want you to have hope in my mercy and goodness and take comfort. Therefore, have confidence and not so much in that you will see the benefits in this thing, but in that I will make you a fisher of men. I like that. That's I good. do too. Yeah. And that's a Melanchthon. He's kind of an addition, right? But that's, he said, he said, this is really what's meant in all of this. Isn't I, this? I like that. Yeah. I do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, I like that. I mean, because, um, and as I said, I mean, the fact that Peter is a sinner and he's commissioned Mm -hmm. to join Jesus in the work of the kingdom, this is going to be important in in Luke's gospel. We're going to see Jesus interacting with sinners of all kinds, and that's really a a primary focus in Luke's gospel. Right. So ultimately, it's not for reformers then, it's not this idea that you're following Jesus out of fear, but because Jesus's message has pierced your heart. Mm, I you know, like because, that. Yeah, yeah, I like that too. Yeah, I, and you know, I've tried to, I've tried to, to put it in, in terms of, you know, we've encountered this love that has claimed us and, and so changed us uh, that we can, you know, um, recognize that we have been unconditionally accepted by God and then that motivates us mm-hmm. then exactly. to want to do things like worship and serve and learn yeah, and yeah, grow, yeah. you know, and, and um, it, so there's an intrinsic motivation coming out of the fact mm-hmm. that we've encountered this mercy of God. Well, yeah. and then think about the deeper theology with that is, you know, salvation by grace mm-hmm. as opposed by works. Absolutely. And so when you fear, you're working because you are afraid you aren't going to be a safe. Not going to so be good doing, enough. So all of this fits into that broader, broader theology that, that we've inherited. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Christy. Thanks. Hi, friends. We're back. And um, we thought we'd talk a little bit about this whole idea of calling to follow Jesus and what it means. And I'm going to let Christy set it up with some things she's dealing with right now. Sure, sure. So we, um, um, I'm in a presbytery here that um, is, has one larger city, but most of the presbytery is made out of little bitty towns that are pretty far removed from big uh, metropolitan areas. Of course, the further away you get from the big city, the harder it is. Um, to have anybody even be called to preach at the churches. And so these churches are struggling finding somebody for Sunday morning. And um, I, I think people don't hear the call. Um, and, you know, I, I keep smiling because I think for those of us in the church, we just kind of expect the kind of halo to appear over our head <laughs> and to... The um, heavenly voices, exactly. the heavenly choir is going to sing. And then, you know, and then you're going to slowly move out and, and, and call the seminary and, and you're going to go. And I, I think um, these small churches are waiting for that reality to happen and that person to come out of seminary looking for a position. And I think there's a lot of people out there who maybe are feel God's nudge, but they're not seeing the halo over their head. And, right. and so um, I th- I'm really big about trying to um, help people find their, their call. And, and maybe their call is into um, subtype of preaching ministry or um, 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 active, um, active pastoral ministry. And so with that in mind, I, um, I've been working on um, kind of slapping them in the face with with some of the things that are available, um, kind of coming at them and saying, hey, this might be what you're being called to do. Or so even, recruiting people uh, I, to, to yeah. become commissioned pastors. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm starting this with uh, a letter that I'm writing. Our, our synod actually has um, a very, very fine um, lay pastor program that has some of the finest um, – 
teachers really mm. from the U.S. that are teaching there. Mm. And so you get some really good coursework done to do um, to be able to to be a, a supply pastor or. Um, well, um, you can even become, uh, you know, a. Um, um, I mean, just a commissioned pastor. Yes, commissioned pastor as yeah. well, right? Yeah. Exactly. So there's lots of choices there. And some of those folks, too, once they discover, you know, maybe you've been out of school for, I don't know, 20, 25, 30 years, you might discover, oh, I can do this and then go on and get the MDiv. And so then you can go on and, and get that um, mm-hmm. that full call. So there's lots of spaces to, to go. And so part of me, part of my desire is just to help people identify in themselves um, maybe what this nudging is. And, and so it's starting with a letter, but there's going to be several times, and this will come past the eyes of folks, and, and hopefully people will see it and say, oh, that is me. And part of it also, when I work with young people, because you know that's one of my big things, working with college students, is when I see somebody that seems to have a real gift, say, you know, have you thought about seminary? Mm-hmm. Have you thought about ordained ministry? And a lot of times they'll go, oh, well, I hadn't really thought that could be a job for me. And it seems obvious to folks in ministry, <laughs> but it's not. They yeah. don't, it's like they have to have permission. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of a, a first nudge at permission. <laughs> well, you know, as you, as you, and I love this idea of recruiting people to serve. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as, as we've come at it from different points of view, we came at it from the biblical story, we came at it from a theological position, you know. I mean, I think one of the things that we come recognize is that we're all called to serve. And yet, you know, I think one of the things that happens in, in the Presbyterian world anyway, that, that as I experience it, is, you know, we, we are reticent. We're hesitant at best mm-hmm. to do anything that smacks of recruiting. <laughs> right, right, right. And yet, why would we be hesitant to recruit people into roles of service, whether right. it's lo- in, in, the, in the local church, serving on a committee, or whether it's serving as a deacon, or whether it's serving as an elder? You know, we're afraid that we're going to, I don't know, um, step on somebody's toes or somehow, you know, we're going to cross some kind of line and they're not going to like it and not going to like us. And, you know, um, there's a sense in which the call that we've all received is an exciting one. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, to some extent, it it overwhelms us, and it, we fall to our knees when right. we think about it. Right. right, right. I am unworthy. Right, and I'm I'm saying I myself, Alan Brame, I am unworthy of right. this call, and yet in God's providence, in God's wisdom, God saw fit to call me anyway, and mm-hmm. hopefully, I would like to say to use me across right. you know the last. 30 some years of my ministry and um you know talk about being awestruck i mean right right that's that just really blows me away and you know um how many people do we have in our churches who may need that nudge just to say hey have you thought about um, serving on this committee, or right. hey, have you thought about being a deacon, or hey, exactly. have you thought about serving exactly. on the session, and and or even hey, you know, 
our Presbytery, Homestead Presbytery is in the same position as your Presbytery. Mm-hmm. We are in desperate need of people who are willing to go to the sort of the outer reaches of the Presbytery and serve churches mm-hmm. um, that can't find, you know, you, you, most of these churches aren't going to get a person who has a seminary degree they uh, because the they them. can't afford to pay them. That's right. Mm-hmm. And so the obvious um, solution is, you know, a commissioned pastor. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I think the challenge is that some of the churches, you know, I think they feel almost as if if they don't have a formally installed minister of word and sacrament, mm-hmm. then they're not really a legitimate church. But that's not the case. Right. I mean, look at look at look at this. I mean, we're talking about Peter and Andrew and John and James. You know, mm-hmm. they went from being professional fishermen to to following Jesus to being apostles who led the church mm-hmm. you know and um it's it's like um one of your reformers said you know that God can use anybody right right and God delights in using anybody he exactly chooses. exactly well and i keep thinking about this this particular passage that we looked at and 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 this call of simon peter and this realizing jeez uh, i'm not i I'm not worthy of of this and um, this call of, yeah, you are. And I think it reminds me of, I think everyone feels that way. And and when you look at who Jesus called and how Jesus called them, then I think people can maybe see themselves in that, when, when we look at, in that, in that same space, you know, maybe, maybe they see them, maybe if we, I guess Jesus kind of smacked <laughs> smacked them in the face surely, with the call. Surely. And I think we, we shouldn't be just so back and just kind of waiting. Hesitant. And yeah. Hesitant yeah. To, to, to recognize in people, to have them put their nets over, right. you know, and right. say, hey, you... Um, Give it a try. You get, you're, you're really gifted. And um, I don't know. I, I, I just, I think there's a lot of excitement in that. And, and um, mm. just, again... I. My my background in this comes from when I taught history, and uh, actually in this kind of mindset. And I, we had small history departments. No one thinks they want to be a history major. What would I do with that? <laughs> and then you find some kids who are really talented. And you're like, you know, you'd be a great history major. And they're like, oh, well, I, I never thought I could be a history major. And I think ministry is the same way. Yeah. They don't, especially the young people today. They need affirmed in gifts. Yes. Yes. And the gifts they have, and if no, they're never affirmed, they don't necessarily right. know they have them. Surely. You know? Yeah, you bet. Well, and you know, the other thing that, that I really liked from your segment was that comment that it's not, I think this was Bullinger, it's, it, that, that it's not uh, what you do in and of yourself, but it's what Christ does yeah. in and through you. Exactly. Oh my gosh, that has been my lifeline <laughs> yeah, <laughs> throughout me too. my career. Me too. Because, you know, especially these days, it's... Ministry is such a hard um, vocation right now. I mean, we're not we're not alone in that. You know, there a lot of people <laughs> are right. are struggling in their vocations right now because of the way things are going in the world. But ministry is such a hard vocation right now. And when we when we tie our sense of success or failure as a minister to the tangible results. You know, boy, you know, this is a time when we can really get 
really beaten up mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. um, you know the the you know attendance is down and and participation is down people are staying home because they're concerned about the pandemic mm -hmm. and you know it's just a, it's a hard time to be mm -hmm. in the ministry I, I've talked to friends who are retired and they're you know talking about all the changes all the constant adaptations we have to make mm -hmm. um, somebody used the analogy of um, it's like we've been driving on the snow and we've had to make constant adjustments and now all of a sudden we're driving on ice. Right, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, if you've ever had to drive any stretch of, 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 of uh, distance on ice, right. you know, I, I mean, well, you, you are literally every moment that you're driving, you are aware of the movement of the car and, and just mm -hmm. how things are going. You are just, you're constantly monitoring. I mean, it's, you're, you're on alert right. constantly. Absolutely. And that's kind of the way it's been, mm -hmm. you know, because th things happen and things change. And all of a sudden an event that we've had planned for months has to be reworked mm -hmm. completely. Yep. And yet, and yet, you know, I think we still have that promise that, you know, it's not what we do in and of ourselves. It's what Christ is going to do through us. Right, right. That is the promise of ministry. Right, exactly. And, and is the promise of this call. Right. You know, yeah. I, I, don't believe, I don't believe that it was because of Peter, anything that Peter, any any wisdom, any charisma, anything that Peter possessed <laughs> right. that 3,000 souls were saved on the day of Pentecost, you know, right. that was the work of the Spirit. Exactly. It was the work of, exactly. of Christ through exactly. him. And uh, again, I, I would say that the same is my, in my case. Me Whatever too. good has been done through my ministry has been the work of the Spirit, right. the work of Christ. Yeah. And, and Exactly. And, you know... I think that's something we need to hear as well right I, I now. I do too, and, and you remind me. So I, I'm an associate pastor, and I write a lot of the prayers. Um, if I focus on them, and I, I always write new prayers, and I get a lot of compliments on my prayers. Nice. And what always reminds me, though, and I always think, I, I don't really, I always, I don't really write it. I didn't feel like I wrote it. I mean, I, I look at the scriptures and something comes out on a paper and I'm always pretty sure it's God's work and not my work at yeah. all. I mean, yeah. I always feel, and I'm sure that's the true, same too with sermons, but. Um, I've, I've experienced it countless times with both worship planning and sermons. Mm -hmm. It was like, wow, where did that come from? Yeah. Now, yeah. you know, there are plenty of other times <laughs> When worship planning or sermon preparation is like pulling teeth and it's very hard work. Um, but there are those times when something just something just seems to come to you right. and, and it's like, wow, I, where did that come from? Mm -hmm. And but the other and the other reminder of that for me is when, you know, there there have been times I've been preaching, I've been preaching for 40 years. Right. And um you know, I've gotten to a place where I can kind of gauge how well I've done with my sermon, at least in my mind, right? right? And, and you know, it is never fails that, you know, I come away from a sermon where I just feel like I have nailed it. 
And I don't get many comments at all. <laughs> and I come away from a sermon where I just feel like I blew that one. Yeah. And I'll get all kinds of comments. And people will say say things about, you know, yeah, that I really never thought about this or that. And it wasn't even anything that I had in mind. Right, right. And, and, and you know, here I am. I'm thinking... Wow, that was one of my worst days in the pulpit. And <laughs> yet, it makes an impact. And yet yeah, it makes an exactly. impact. And so, you know, again, it's not what we do in and of ourselves. It's what Christ does it is. through us. It is what Christ does through us. So, I mean, you know, Simon and James and John, they followed. And I think that's the key is yep. that we're willing to follow. Willing, I agree. I agree 100%. Well, if you are... Um, one of the people listening out there that um, is not an ordained ministry, and uh, and maybe maybe this is a, that little slap in the face <laughs> that uh, that God is calling you. Or shall we say the affirmation? <laughs> <laughs> the yes. affirmation of your gifts. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, okay, Christy. Thank you. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.